Okay, hi everybody. We're going to get started. Um, hopefully everybody uh, was able to get in safe. It wasn't seem too bad today. The mic seems loud though. I feel like I'm booming. I'll bring it down a little bit. Um, the first thing I wanted to talk about is uh, about the syllabus and the class schedule. Uh, I had talked about, I briefly mentioned that I had this five-day judicial review um, hearing during our class and had the idea of making part of the class, you know, being to come down, watch some of that if you can. Um, as it turns out, that hearing has been adjourned, as often happens. Um, you know, one of the goals of any um, judicial review is just to spur the sides to settlement, and we're trying to get towards that. So that's good for me and timing and now we have you know don't have to uh, miss any class but it does mean this ability to have this um, judicial review hearing you're going to go see uh, isn't going to happen i still have a judicial review during reading week if people want to come watch that that's totally fine but i am going to um, shift the syllabus and schedule around actually fairly considerably um, that'll be a new syllabus coming out on uh, by next wednesday I want to juggle a few things um, also because of the, the order I want some things to land. I had moved around in order to give some space for this week, but without that week being off, then there are some things I want to touch earlier in the course than we have it now. So it'll be a little bit of balancing, a little bit of juggling. I'll get the new syllabus out as soon as I can, but just to let you know, that's you know not going to happen. There was one class that was going to be canceled. That class will be back on. Uh, there may be a later class that has to be canceled now. So anyways, just want to give you a heads up. You'll be getting something about that. Um, getting into today, uh, we have four really interesting cases to talk about. I think a lot of these abstract ideas, and thank you for bearing with me on a very abstract theoretical journey on Wednesday. Once I start saying quantum physics, I'm like, boy, I definitely lost the plot a little bit here. But, you know, thanks for sticking with me. I hate the Zoom, like just not being able to see anybody's interactions, anybody's faces uh, makes it so much harder. But hopefully that, um, you know, was was better than nothing. Um, today, though, we should see these concepts much more concretely as they resonate in four really important or really interesting and illustrative cases. Uh, before I get into the cases, though, I did want to take a second just to think about what it takes to hear a Supreme Court of Canada case, like the four cases that we read for today. What does it take to get there in the administrative law world? So I put up this diagram on the board, and you want to think that, you know, at the start you have these admin tribunals at the very bottom, and they've been empowered through legislation to decide some issue, to resolve some dispute, to decide someone's entitlement to something, you know, whatever the, thing, the case may be, and we'll see very many examples throughout this course, obviously. And I wanted to also put on the board just a reminder about the money that you're spending as you go up this, this uh, chart. So you want to think the admin tribunal it's not the absolute cheapest, but it's going to be relatively affordable, definitely cheaper than going to court. Even if you want to hire a lawyer, ordinarily the process before these admin tribunals is pretty um, informal. There's often not strict rules of evidence. 
You usually don't have to go through an intensive document disclosure process, which is anybody who you know, has worked at a firm for a summer in a civil context would know can be really endless and very expensive. Uh, ordinarily, the rules of evidence at the hearing are quite relaxed. Hearsay is often allowed. There's a lot of things that would tend to make these more streamlined, easy, and efficient than a full court process. And that often resonates in lower cost to the litigants, even if they are uh, represented by lawyers. Or it may also be you're filling out just an application or something like that. It may all be in writing. So lots of reasons that the tribunal cost would stay down. So you start here, now you get your decision and you don't like it. What are your options? Sometimes there is an ability to go to an internal review or an internal appeal. This is important to keep in mind is distinct from the very important concept of a statutory appeal, which we're going to talk a lot about in this course. An internal review or an internal appeal is when you're still within the tribunal framework and you're appealing to another administrative body. So quite often the statute will have a scheme whereby there'll be a first level decision maker and then an abil internal ability to either appeal or review that decision. For example, um, you know, you may have, people here may have dealt with workers' compensation. That's a very high volume uh, tribunal. If you ever get hurt on the job, you'll know that you can apply to the workers' compensation branch, WCB, and they'll assess whether you're entitled to some compensation for your you know, workplace injury. WCB is extremely high volume, okay? They get tons and tons of things, tons of applications. So in essence, the way they've set up this scheme is they say, listen, we don't want to clog up and have a really long delay on processing this really high volume of decisions that we're gonna get. So we're gonna have our adjudicators move relatively quickly through these things try to make their decisions in a timely way, give relatively brief decisions, and have relatively little process, relatively little opportunity for an oral hearing or cross-examination on questions of credibility. All this is out of a theory, in essence, hey, let's get 100% of the cases 90% right in a quick amount of time, as opposed to getting the cases, you know, maybe 95% right, but taking 25, 30, 50, double the amount of time that we might otherwise take. But you recognize the unfairness in sort of setting up a system where some number are going to fall through the cracks, where there's inadequate time, attention, process to be able to get to the right answer. So they create the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal, WCAT, which is another administrative body, all under the same legislation, which will take more time give you more process, have a more uh, exacting review. So you may uh, say, listen, I got denied workers' compensation. Uh, you didn't believe that I was, you know, in fact, unable to do my job. Well, I'm going to go to WCAT and I'm going to, you know, have a better chance to prove this, this, um, this problem. So you quite often see these sorts of things that have internal appeal mechanisms. There's also internal review or reconsideration. Sometimes you can go back to the same decision maker and say, hey, 
Try it again. You, you missed something in your decision. This didn't make sense. You need to vary this, amend this, fix this. So you want to think that there's a big dividing line here on the board between the admin tribunal and the internal reviewer appeal. And here we're getting into the courts. So this is the world of tribunals. And this is the world of courts. And following through on my um, the money side of things, internal review or appeal is usually less expensive than going to the tribunal the first time. You've already done a lot of the work. The issues have probably been narrowed. You know, the, internal, the, the first levels may have said, yes, I agree with you on this, this, and this, but I can't give you a remedy because of this issue. So you've cut it down from four issues to one. You focus, you've got a lot of the work done. This can be a quite economical way to get a second look at things. You're still unhappy. Internal review didn't work, or there's no right of internal review. There, there may not be an ability to ask for reconsideration or to have an appeal to an internal statutory, or sorry, an internal appeal mechanism. Then you have to go to the courts. Now you're really in the world of admin law in the sense that we're going to be focusing in this class. Now, just taking a pause there, you know, practice before these tribunals, what these tribunals' processes and procedures look like is a component of this course, but it's so varied uh, from tribunal to tribunal. The answer is really to look at the statutes, to look at the guidance that the tribunal puts out to speak to people who have participated in the tribunal, that it's really hard to cover the, the panoply of these different tribunal processes in this course. So really, we focus on how these tribunals interface with the courts in the context of judicial review, statutory appeals, et cetera. Um, that's not to say, though, that practice before tribunals is something that uh, you know we're going to try to avoid or, or not talk about. It is extremely important and I think often under considered uh, in administrative law courses. You know, what does the actual tribunal hearing look like? How could you go about um, being effective at these tribunals? Because all this is just if something went wrong down here, right? So you want to put your client in the position to succeed at the admin tribunal if you can. So we will be talking a bit about that in this course. Um, that said, a big problem is very often, when do I get a phone call to get involved? Well, it's not at this stage. Often people represent themselves here, maybe even here, and then when they get the decision they don't like through these um, you know, processes that are supposed to be more accessible and supposed to be open to people without lawyers, that's when they get somebody involved and that's when they start to um, rack up the bills, to be honest. This is when it gets expensive. Often this is when the lawyers get involved, when we're arguing about what happened at the tribunal. So the next stage, we're going up to the BC Supreme Court or the federal court ordinarily. Usually the uh, review of the executive by the judiciary starts at the trial level court. Occasionally though, you skip the trial court and you go right to the court of appeal or the federal court. The only time you would get to do that, to skip 
the trial court and go right to the federal court is when there's a statutory appeal. My handwriting's so bad that when I fill out permission slips for my kids, I think the teachers think they're forging it because it looks like a child's handwriting. But the, so you go to the, but you can sometimes skip this first level review through a statutory appeal and go right to the court of appeal or right to the federal court of appeal. I'll just give you an example um, that, you know, hopefully won't come up personally for you, but in the Law Society uh, Legal Professions Act, if you will all apply to this, to the Law Society at the admin tribunal level to become members, right? To become admitted. If they say, nope, you can't become a member, um, something's given them, you know, pause for concern with your good character or something like that, you're allowed to go to an internal review. Uh, it's the benchers review. You get a panel of all benchers, eight or nine benchers, to review your uh, the, the determination you're not allowed to become a lawyer. You also have a choice, though, of skipping that internal review and going right to the BC Court of Appeal to bring a statutory appeal of the Law Society's decision. That's just set out in the Legal Professions Act. The Act says you're allowed to do it, so you can do it. So that's the statutory appeal sometimes allows you to skip and go right to the Court of Appeal. Ordinarily, though, either the statutory appeal may say an appeal lies to the BC Supreme Court, or most often, and this is the focus of the course, this is the one that you want to really you know, think we're keying in on, most often what you're doing is you're bringing an application for judicial review to the BC Supreme Court or to the federal court. Which one? Well, we'll talk more about this, but if it's provincial legislation, BC Supreme Court, federal legislation, federal court. This is a very expensive step usually. You're getting a lawyer involved, you're briefing up a lawyer, the lawyer is learning about the case, putting together materials. A judicial review hearing often can take a while, five, five days, something like that can be uh, pretty normal. Almost certainly this is going to be more expensive than you've um, had to incur so far at the admin tribunal, unless the tribunal is one of the you know, highly specialized National Energy Board. Maybe a pipeline company spent more already at the tribunal level. But quite often you're going to have your big bill coming in here. Now I'm going to um, come back to that question of this big bill when we maybe at the end of the class, certainly next class, get into the question of remedies and how you advise your client, you know, about what they may get and whether they want to even take this step because they may be unhappy with the remedies that are potentially available at the courts in a judicial review. That's getting a bit ahead of myself. So you have your judicial review. Let's say this is the ordinary one. You've got a min tribunal, internal review. Now you're up to a judicial review. You're unhappy with that. You know, the court says, nope, judicial review denied. Um, cost award against you. Go pay the other side some costs maybe. Well, you still have further rights. You have a right to appeal this judicial review 
the dismissal of the judicial review to the Court of Appeal or the Federal Court of Appeal. I'm going to introduce an interesting wrinkle that we'll come back to, it'll make more sense later. But what is very strange about these appeals is that they are, in essence, almost always complete do-overs. You get to make the exact same arguments to the Court of Appeal you made to the uh, lower, to the BC Supreme Court or the Federal Court, and they will have no deference to the decision of the BC Supreme Court or the Federal Court. It's unlike losing a trial where you go to the Court of Appeal, they'll defer on all the findings of facts. Here, they won't do so. And I'll come to why in a second. I just want to close it out by um, you know, finishing up the chain. So BC Court of Appeal may hear the appeal. It's going to be a little less expensive than the uh, BC Supreme Court level because, again, you'll have um, done a lot of the work already, narrowed the issues probably on the, at the appellate level. And ordinarily, the Court of Appeal just won't give you the time that you had at the BC Supreme Court. You may have a five-day judicial review at the BC Supreme Court. The Court of Appeal says, we'll give you one day. Narrow the issues, you know, brief them in your factum, but we're not going to give you the amount of time you could get at the BC Supreme Court, which makes your job harder in some ways, but also makes your client's costs usually less. Still unhappy, the next stage, leave to appeal Supreme Court of Canada. As you know, this is very, uh, very much a... Um, a gamble for your client. It's, it's unlikely you're going to get leave, even if you think this is the most important case. The fact is, Supreme Court of Canada grants leave exceedingly rarely. Um, I forget the percentage. It's actually been going down year to year since in the last 10 years. But it's, it's like 15% or something like that. It's very low. If you, you could try to leave, the leave's not super expensive, but you have to hire an Ottawa agent usually, and it, things do add up for your client. The leave, you know, is not free. And then if you win that, you're off Supreme Court of Canada, and then you have another big expense, of course. So you want to think, for all these cases that we're looking at today, they all wound their way up. They all made it all the way up. If you want to think about some of the issues, you know, sometimes you could see, all right, the price of these drugs uh, may be so high and trying to keep out of oversight of Health Canada in the Celgene case, it's a bargain to spend this money to get a shot at, you know, avoiding um, regulatory oversight perhaps. But if you're unhappy with, you know, being kicked out of the Jehovah's Witness group, how much money is being spent on this, you know? So you, you want to think about um, this reality when you're uh, reading these cases and think about all the steps that have gone into it and the amount of time and effort that's gone into all these cases. Something to bear in the back of your mind, um, especially when we're sort of keeping this rule of law has a component of accessibility in our, in our minds. Because one of the things we're going to touch on throughout this course is the idea that deference to tribunals limits the incentive to take this ride up the chain. If you know that you're almost certainly going to be stuck with the same decision, the idea is that may preclude people from just throwing money at these, um, at these issues to try to get a different result or empowering the more resourced of the litigants to do so, at least. 
Um, so just a framework to have in mind, it's a little different than what you see at the, um, you know, in your ordinary tort law or criminal law cases in terms of the chain going up. One more point I wanted to make before getting into the cases, Ron Corelli, and it is um, kind of a pitch almost for why admin law is actually quite a fun place to practice as a litigator. And the reason is that when you get involved at this case, at this level, I should say, the BC Supreme Court federal court level for a judicial review, we'll talk a lot more about this, but a key idea of administrative law is it's a review on the record. What was the record before the decision maker? We are going to look at that record and we're going to decide if this decision maker, based on this record, came to a reasonable or fair decision. Ordinarily, that's the framing. What's really interesting about that is you may have some great piece of evidence that you say, hey, if I had just put this before the decision maker, it would have changed everything. And in all but exceptional circumstances, the court's going to say, yeah, but you didn't. Our job is to make sure the executives stay within their scope of their jurisdiction. That means reviewing their decision as it was made at the time it was made. It's unlikely you're going to lose your jurisdiction because of something you didn't know about that was never raised. How this lands in the actual practice of admin law is you don't have to do document disclosure and discovery. You get, in essence, appeals. Here's the record. It may be big, but often it's like a binder. This is all the material you have to know. Write a argument. You can schedule it within months. Have your hearing. Be done. So, you know, this judicial review that was just adjourned for February, it was a um, judicial review I filed in October. The material was all, you know, everything that was going to be really at issue was in affidavits I filed. It's 2,000 pages, but that's not that much when you think about document disclosure. I write my arguments, away we go. Compare that to trials. I'm right now working on closing arguments for a trial. This trial has been winding its way for about five years, about three years of document disclosure back and forth, discoveries, examinations for discovery, preliminary applications, summary trials leading up to it. The 50-day uh, trial is now in day 95. They always go long. Um, they take over your life. Because what do you do in the evening after a day in court? You prep your witness for the next day, right? Um, you know, a trial lawyering is very hard, very tiring, frankly, hard on families, hard on um, relationships, hard on your personal health. Like, I have not been to the gym <laughs> in a while because of this trial. And um, so judicial reviews can be a really nice way to practice litigation to do interesting issues that don't take over your life and that, that turn over. You get to do new things, new issues arise. So I just wanted to say that the outset of the course that you can start to think not just about these ideas in the abstract or even in the concrete as to how we apply them to cases, but what it actually looks like to be a lawyer 
working in these areas. And we are going to do a, um, a section of admin law and practice with some lawyers coming in to talk about their practices. Okay, so that's um, a big sort of intro to a few ideas um, before we got into the cases. Now I am ready to get to the cases. Are there any questions about any of this stuff? All right, um, let's get into the cases. We've got four of them today. Um, I would say by far the most important one is Ron Corelli. The other three cases should help you kind of land some ideas, get some sort of concrete um, examples as to how things can resonate. These ideas of rule of law, arbitrariness, discretion can resonate. Ron Corelli is a case that you know you'll you'll we'll we'll talk about throughout this course. Hopefully, it sticks with you. Um, I'm sure you've already heard of it or you've read it already, but it matters so much for administrative law that I'm going to spend a, a good amount of time on it, a good amount of time on the facts, and a good amount of time on how the ideas of rule of law and arbitrariness resonate in this case. So just to remind you of the facts of Ron Corelli and Duplessis, um, you have to sort of situate this at a moment in time. So this is 1946, I think, is when this stuff was all happening, right out of the Second World War in Quebec. And I'm sure many of you have lived in Montreal or been to Montreal, and you would know that despite the you know, very secular society that has developed in Quebec, it was extremely religious, extremely Roman Catholic in the 40s. Uh, pre-quiet revolution, as it were. And so in the 40s, in 1946, the government you know, was uh, representative of the, of the morals of the day and were highly uh, alert to and distrustful of anything that seemed a threat to the sort of Roman Catholic social order. The Duplessis, in this case, was the premier of Quebec. Strangely, in that government, for whatever reason, he was also the attorney general, so he was sort of wearing two hats in that government. But, you know, premier, attorney general, most powerful person in the Quebec government, for sure. Ron Corelli was a restaurateur. It's a very successful restaurateur. You know, it's interesting in Justice Rand's decision he a few times says how good the restaurant is like he can feels like he really likes that spot um anyways so ron corelli is a restaurateur successful restaurateur he's also a jehovah's witness jehovah's witness uh as you no doubt are aware from you know just living uh, is a religion that um tends to try to you know, spread the word. To, they'll go door to door, they'll stand on the corner, um, they'll give out or sell for you know, a meager amount, uh, the watchtower or their other um, religious tracts. And um, you know, fundamentally, it's, it's a religion that tries to convert people to its beliefs. You can probably see how this runs into conflict with this um, Roman Catholic uh, you know, social order and the government that's committed to preserving that order. So what starts happening? Well, this is pre-charter, obviously, right? What starts happening is a um, 
clearly discriminatory crackdown on Jehovah's Witnesses. So when they would go out to, you know, sell their 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 religious work, their religious um, pieces of literature, they would get arrested. They would get ticketed. They would get fairly significant tickets of, um, you know, I looked up the inflation. I think it said forty dollars in the in the case, and that was like that's like four hundred dollars today. So they're getting pretty significant tickets for um, selling their their um, you know, their books without a license, illegal street peddling. You know, not a not a heinous crime, not a crime that usually results in mass arrests. And to be clear, they were not just being ticketed. It wasn't just a summons on the street, you know, pay this when you can. They were being booked, you know, brought into jail. And they were being forced to post bail if they wouldn't admit what they did was wrong. And they were saying, well, no, it's not wrong. I'm, you know, spreading the word. So situation becomes a lot of Mr. Ron Corelli's fellow Jehovah Witnesses are in jail, not able to post bail for doing something that Mr. Ron Corelli sees as, you know, compelled by religion. Now, obviously now, charter challenge, you know, there's a whole lot of things that would be different about this set of facts today. But what Mr. Ron Corelli does is he says, look, you know me, I have um, a successful business, I'm an established um, you know, a person, a person of means and reputation, I will guarantee the bail for any Jehovah's Witness who's arrested in this, in this context. So this program of, in essence, harassment starts to become less effective because as soon as a Jehovah's Witness is put in a jail, you know, bail is set, they're immediately released on the guarantee of Mr. Ron Corelli to, to you know, to pay the bail or to guarantee they'll show up for their for their court date. Um, the Quebec government's not really prosecuting these things. Like they're not really bothering to go through with the actual enforcement of the tickets. So these things are just lo- you know backlogging where he's all of a sudden the guarantor for hundreds of these arrests. They stop it by converting to a cash bail. He's not actually putting out bail. So they, they start figuring out a way to arrest these people and getting around Ron Corelli. That's kind of besides the point. Where this all really lands is Ron Corelli, to have a successful restaurant, needs a liquor license. His liquor license comes up for renewal. He submits it to the government for you know the liquor commission to renew his liquor license. And the liquor commissioner looks at it and says, wait a second, I know that name. Goes to the premier, goes right to Duplessis and says, hey, I think this is the guy who's posting all those bails for all those Jehovah's Witnesses. Duplessis says, all right, make sure, you know, go double check that this is the same guy. But if it is, you know, look out. It is the same guy. Duplessis says, okay, Never give them, tell them you're not getting your liquor license and tell them you're never getting a liquor license, right? Tell them you're done. So liquor license denied, absolutely fatal to a business. Um, He tries to 
trudge on, but within a, a few months or, or some short period, the business fails. He has to sell it. What does he do? This is where we take a little pause and we remember the book talking about the history of admin law and it really not developing uh, until really the post-war years. In 1946, you know, frankly, the idea of going to a judicial review of a decision of a liquor commissioner to not give you a permit, you know, may not have crossed anyone's mind, may not have been procedurally really possible, I'm not sure. Either way, it's not the approach he took. So to be clear, this is not technically an administrative law judicial review case. This is a case involving an action for damages. He says, government, you wronged me, you caused me harm, you have to pay for it. And you'll remember uh, a couple classes ago, I talked about there being three ways the judiciary can get involved in overseeing the executive judicial review, statutory appeal. And the third was in the context of an action for damages. So Ron Corelli and Duplessis, uh, you probably read about it in tort law. That may be the context you've seen it before, but it is a key foundational case for the tort of misfeasance in public office, which is a, a really important tort. Um, it's the idea that if the government takes a uh, unlawful act calculated or with the knowledge it's going to harm you, you can recover damages from that state actor. And it's one of the main hooks to get money out of the government for unlawful conduct, because there's a lot of immunity for good faith, even mistakes that cause damage to people. Leaving that all aside, you know, foundational tort case. But what this case tells us about is a key concept that's going to just animate so much admin law. And it is the scope of executive um, discretion when the statute would seem to suggest that discretion has no limits. And so what I'm getting at there is that the statute at issue, you know, in essence, says that the uh, Liquor Commission can grant or deny permits as it sees fit. Nothing in the statute explicitly says that there be any reason that you couldn't grant someone a, a liquor license. And you may think of it as a privilege. You know, and a privilege can be granted or revoked by the government. Had the legislature wanted to put limits on why you could grant or revoke a liquor license, you know, maybe they could have said so, as one, as one theory, theory might go. So the case works its way up uh, remarkably slowly. I think this is a 1959 decision, which is like 13 years after the facts at issue. We'll talk more uh, later in the course about you know, justice delayed and rule of law concerns, but uh, it's a very long time this case works its way up. There's a trial. There's a decision on reserve for a very long time. But then I think to many people's surprise, the finding is, yes, this was illegal. You know, the Liquor Commission could not withhold this permit at the premier's direction in order to, in essence, get even with Mr. Ron Corelli for undermining their Jehovah's Witness campaign. Goes to the um, Court of Appeal, goes to the Supreme Court of Canada. 
Supreme Court of Canada hears this case over the, over the course of five days, which is um, really would be unheard of now. Uh, maybe you know two or three days are the absolute longest, but for whatever reason, they take five days with this one. And this is the the olden days where you get you know multiple judgments saying um, I agree or I don't agree, and you have to kind of count up all the judgments to figure out who was the um, you know what the leading decisions are and what the outcome was. Three judges dissent from the outcome. There's a little tidbit that I just love that is um, it's funny, I think. And two of the three judges who dissent from the outcome, the outcome being this premier of Quebec broke the law and is liable, two of the three judges who dissent are direct relatives of other premiers of Quebec, which is surprising. One's the son of a premier of Quebec, one's the nephew of a premier of Quebec, and they both say, no, he was fine. The other judge um, who dissents, Justice Cartwright, not as far as I know related to a premier of Quebec, but takes a position that is very strong and adamant in the idea that there was an untrammeled discretion. The statute gave you discretion to do this without any limits on the basis upon which you can exercise your discretion. So Justice Cartwright, Chief Justice Cartwright says, or to be Chief Justice Cartwright says, I, I can't interfere. You know, He's coming back to a concept of parliamentary supremacy. Parliament gave what on a fair reading is an untrammeled discretion. That means it's not for me to say, I don't like how this discretion was exercised. It's not for me to interfere. This was legal and so therefore cannot be actionable. That's Cartwright in dissent. But the decision that matters, the one that you, um, if you say Ron Corelli, we're really talking about Justice Rand's reasons in Ron Corelli. And Justice Rand decides no. Fundamentally, what he decides is, I cannot examine the scope of this discretion that was given to the liquor commissioner absent from a consideration of the purpose for which that discretion was granted. This is a really key thing. I have to interpret the scope of this discretion consistent with its purpose. And if somebody exercises discretion for a reason wholly unrelated to that purpose, that is outside the scope of their jurisdiction, Parliament never intended to let them exercise that discretion on that basis. I'm going to read the key passage to you in a second because it is well said and, and, and good words to have sort of brewing in the back of your mind. I'm sure you've read it, but I'll read it back to you again. But I want to just pause and just make sure we see the sort of categorical leap that Justice Rand takes. So Justice Cartwright is saying, look, what happened here? The liquor commissioner canceled a permit. What does Parliament say? You can cancel permits. Parliament didn't say why. Is canceling a permit within this guy's jurisdiction? Yes. So what he did. There's no jurisdictional issue here. 
Justice Cartwright focuses on the what, right? What happened? A permit was canceled. What's the scope of the jurisdiction? It's to cancel permits. Justice Rand takes this leap. He goes from the what into the why, right? It's not just enough that you have jurisdiction to cancel a permit. We're going to look at why Parliament intended to allow you to exercise that jurisdiction. When you do it for an improper purpose, when the why is something that Parliament wouldn't have intended, then you have similarly exceeded your jurisdiction and done something you were never entitled to do. It's a big leap uh, conceptually that really is a foundation for so much of administrative law review. So there's a couple of paragraphs from Justice Rand's reasons that I, I do want to read through. Um, I think that these, these will help land these points. So Justice Rand says, and I don't have the, um, what page it's on in the PDF, but it is part of the highlighted section. Justice Rand says, the field of licensed occupations and businesses of this nature is steadily becoming of greater concern to citizens generally. And I pause there, that situates it within this timeline described in the book chapter of more and more things being delegated to administrative decision makers, the administrative state growing, you know, especially as it's going to accelerate in this post-World War II time. So Justice Rand sees that trend. This is getting important. Things are being pushed to these sorts of decision makers. It is a matter of vital importance, he says, that a public administration that can refuse to allow a person to enter or continue a calling, which in the absence of regulation would be free and legitimate, should be conducted with complete impartiality and integrity, and that the grounds for refusing or canceling a permit should unquestionably be such and such only as are incompatible with the purposes envisaged by the statute. So what he's saying is, if I want to know why you're going to refuse or cancel a permit, it has to be because to, for you to have this permit would be incompatible with the purposes envisioned by the statute. Why do you have this jurisdiction to refuse or cancel permits? That's going to guide the discretion. This is That's the where he makes that key leap. A decision to deny or cancel such a privilege lies within the discretion of the commission, but that means that decision is to be based upon a weighing of considerations pertinent to the object of the administration. So you can't bring in consideration of objects that are not pertinent to the reason that you have this discretion. So this is the key, uh, that's, that's a very key paragraph that sort of sets out what really happened here. What's the big leap? The next paragraph is the paragraph that if you say Ron Corelli, you're really probably referring to this paragraph. It's a paragraph that says, in public regulation of this sort, there is no such thing as absolute and untrammeled discretion. That's like highlight that, put a sticky on it, whatever. That is a huge point. There's no such thing as absolute discretion. Discretion's always going to have its bounds. 
So he continues. That is that action can be taken on any ground for any reason that can be suggested to the mind of the administrator. Nobody can have absolute untrammeled discretion, he says. He then says, no legislative act can, without express language, be taken to contemplate an unlimited arbitrary power exercisable for any purpose, however capricious or irrelevant, regardless of the nature or purpose of the statute. Now, I'm going to pause there, and that's where I'm going to stop reading. There's an interesting little caveat in there that you may have picked up on. It says, no legislation can be taken to give you the power to act arbitrary or capricious unless authorized by statute. And this is, again, just good administrative lawyering. You always want to remember that we are always thinking about the scope of legislation, unless we have a charter challenge, that's always the question. And so he's saying, unless parliament or the legislature says you can act arbitrarily and capriciously, I will never assume they intended that. I will always assume they didn't. Now, can parliament legislate that you can act arbitrarily, capriciously? On a parliamentary supremacy basis on the idea that parliament can make or unmake any law whatsoever? Yes, they can. And certainly in 1946, they could. The only check would be the question of constitutional supremacy. Post-1982, you'd probably have a good charter challenge to that on the basis of arbitrariness. The other small caveat is you may be able to raise a Section 96 Court's constitutional challenge on the basis of the previous 1867 Constitution. Just a little star in your notes on that. We're coming back to that later. Don't worry about that too much now. But the, the public law principle is a starting point, leaving aside the potential for some constitutional avenues to say you couldn't give discretionary, arbitrary, capricious power to anybody. Absent the constitutional challenge, the theory is yes, parliament could say that. But again, it's about presumptions. If they don't say that explicitly, I'm never going to assume that's what they meant. And landing it in this case, I do not assume that parliament, in giving the commissioner the ability to grant, refuse, cancel a liquor license, I don't say that Parliament ever intended the commissioner to be able to exercise that power to settle private scores of the premier. So what happens? Cartwright says this is legal. Rand says no, this was illegal. This was targeted. This was malicious. And it's actionable. I'm going to in essence, in one fell swoop, I'm going to create the tort of misfeasance in public office, and I'm going to radically further administrative law. That's why this decision is so, so important. So the trial judgment had given Mr. Ron Corelli $3,000 damages. Not great, right, for losing your business, even in 1946 dollars. That's only like 30 grand. Um, the Supreme Court of Canada says, look, it's hard to know, hard to measure um, what the actual 
losses in a case like this. It's always going to be hypothetical. Um, but we're going to up that to about $33,000, so 300 something thousand dollars. You know, nice, but um, Mr. Ron Corelli had been out of business for now 13 years. He dies really shortly after the Supreme Court of Canada decision. He was working as a laborer for the last like five, 10 years of his life. So even though he ultimately is held up as the plaintiff in this seminal rule of law case, he didn't really ever get, you know, just um, justice in, in the true sense. You know, he 13 years of delay meant that he his life was ruined by this illegal act by a out of control in a sense premier. So where we really want to situate this is, again, this is such a seminal rule of law case. And one of the issues that I think is difficult to, um, to, cut, to, to sort of get your head around coming out of last class's lecture is this idea of discretion and the rule of law. And I had a good question, you know, well, what about Bingham saying that discretion is a problem for the rule of law? Um, is that more of a sort of Dicean uh, thought? And, you know, it depends on how you consider, how broadly you consider discretion, you know, can be properly granted by Parliament. So when Parliament chooses to give a decision maker discretion, and they stay within the scope of that intended discretion. Bingham, Abella, modern rule of law thinkers say, that's not a problem for the rule of law. That was the elected officials conferring a discretion to somebody who is capable of exercising it. And then you got the courts to make sure that they stay within the scope of that discretion. However, you know, under the, the Cartwright approach, where discretion can be wielded in these arbitrary ways, that's a huge problem for the rule of law. So you can think of Ron Corelli and the notion that discretion will be confined by the purpose for which that discretion was given to the body. You can think of that as the thing that saves discretion under a rule of law framework that ensures that discretion is not exercised in an arbitrary, capricious manner, which would be very contrary to the rule of law. All right, uh, any questions? Okay, let's take our break now and we'll try to come, there's quite a bit to get through. Let's try to come back at 11.30 and we'll, we'll get started again then. We're going to go through the insight case, and I'm going to depart a little bit from how I have my notes. I was just thinking about it. We're going to go insight, cell gene, and then the Highwood congregation case. So um, when you get the online notes, they'll be a little bit out of order, but the case, it'll all be there. I just think that the concepts will land a little better in that order. Um, insight, fascinating case. Have people studied that one before? Yeah, okay. It's interesting because a few years ago I asked that question and nobody had and I was very surprised, but I'm glad to hear people are. I think it's extremely important for a variety of reasons, most notably probably 
you know, charter, a little bit of interjurisdictional immunity stuff becomes um, very interesting in that case. We're studying it um, for another rule of law and arbitrariness concern. That's where we're coming at it from. It's an interesting case because, again, this was not presented as an administrative law judicial review. This was brought as an action, a constitutional action, seeking a finding that a particular section of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act was unconstitutional for violating Section 7 rights, among other reasons, uh, of the people who were users of the Insight facility. Sure, you all are familiar with what Insight is, but just in case, I'll just give the highest level overview. It's Safe Injection Site, downtown East Side. It's been operating for quite some time now. I forget the length of time, but maybe 20 years or so. Uh, I looked up today in the last statistics I could see were something like, you know, it was some a huge number, 600,000 injections or something like that. Um, 6,000 overdoses, maybe 6 million injections, a huge number, 6,000 overdoses, no deaths. Um, the idea is that people bring their own drugs to Insight, uh, but the staff provide safe needles um, and monitoring. So if you, uh, you know, the, make sure you have a safe um, needle to shoot with, and then they monitor to make sure that you don't um, collapse and die, in essence. So hugely successful program from a public health standpoint is how the evidence came out at trial. And I want to be clear that this is a case that very much turned on the evidentiary findings made at trial as to the impacts of insight on the community. Um, obviously a controversial program coming from a harm reduction model of drug, uh, you know, dealing with drug issues and there's other models that other people prefer, um, you know, a prohibitory model. This case had some factual findings that, you know, the court found strongly supportive of the efficacy of a harm reduction model. So Insight is operating, um, receiving international plaudits as being very successful. But it's a conservative government of the day who sees um, harm reduction as not in the best interests of Canada as a whole. They're not secretive about this. This is part of their, their campaign message. This is part of their platform. So they decide when it comes time for Insight to renew its Section 56 exemption from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, it will not grant that exemption. What's a Section 56 exemption? Well, in essence, there's a broad prohibition on possessing, handling a list of controlled drugs. Certainly the, you know, the opioids and amphetamines that are really key to Insights business are part of that. But there's a carve out. There is an ability for the Minister of Health to issue exemptions from the Section 4 prohibition on drugs. Now, it's a certain people in certain circumstances, and Insight had one of those. But the new government, or the, not new, but the government of the day says, we are going to um, not renew that exemption. The effect of that would be to close Insight, or at least to make anybody who works there 
at risk of criminal prosecution because they would be handling, distributing, controlled drugs and substances. So what do the um, people behind Insight, the people running Insight, Portland Hotel Society, that's the PHS, what do they do? They go and they hire Joe Arve. Are you familiar with Joe Arve? People know? People don't know. Okay, well, Joe Arve is the best lawyer the British Columbia ever had. And I don't think that's like a subjective choice. That's just maybe a fact. Like if you go through your your constitutional law syllabus, if you count it up, you'll find more cases he's on than he's not on. He was the absolute uh, most brilliant, um, effective advocate I've ever seen in person. And um, he passed away, sadly, about three years ago, very unexpectedly. He spent most of his life in a wheelchair after a skiing accident. Uh, but he um, you know, lived life with this incredible vigor. He was maybe 70 when he died, looked about 40. And just a remarkable, remarkable lawyer. And we're going to watch him argue in this in this course. I, one thing I do like to do is show videos of Supreme Court of Canada hearings, some of the cases that we talk about. I think it helps land the cases and you get an idea of the personalities and you know the arguments that are made. Um, we're going to watch actually some of Arve in, in this case um, a week from today. And ironically, we're going to see the point where I think he realizes he miscast the entire case, but quickly segues. Uh, in that this is where the, he realizes this really was an administrative law case the entire time. So Joe Arve, um, certainly a name that that you will get to know as you go about practice, you know, an absolute legend. And so Joe Arve takes this case on, goes to trial, gets all these great findings about the efficacy of insight, so marshals evidence in a brilliant way, goes to the Court of Appeal, gets them to recognize interjurisdictional immunity, protecting a provincial head of power from federal intrusion for literally, I think, the first time ever. It had maybe happened implicitly in one or two other cases, but for an explicit interjurisdictional immunity, you know, everyone's favorite doctrine from first year constitutional law, no doubt, interjurisdictional immunity can operate to protect a provincial law never been done before. He succeeds in getting that to be accepted at the Court of Appeal. Goes to the Supreme Court of Canada. He loses on that interjurisdictional immunity point, but he wins the case. And he also loses the challenge to the constitutionality of the legislation, because that's how he had framed it, was that this Controlled Drug and Substances Act is violating my client's rights by prohibiting them from getting medical treatment that they need. The Supreme Court of Canada said, well, the bare prohibition might, but you have to read the bare prohibition along with this Section 56 exemption that empowers the minister to exercise the discretion to you know, preclude application of this law when it would violate those rights. So the Supreme Court of Canada says, the problem doesn't lie with the law. The law from the legislature is okay. The legislature set out a prohibition but gave an ex a safety valve exemption to keep it constitutional. The problem lies with the executive administering 
that Section 56 exemption. When they started getting to this at the Supreme Court of Canada here, and you can see them all saying, this shouldn't this be an admin law case? Isn't that really what we're talking about? And yes, indeed, now we're really into a kind of admin law framing. So the court says, what's the evidence that was uh, you know, known to the minister when the Section 56 exemption was, uh, was not granted? And it's established at trial that traditional criminal law prohibitions have done little to reduce drug use in the downtown east side of Vancouver. Probably all agree that's true. Second thing, the risk of injection drug users, the risk to injection drug users of death and disease is reduced when they inject under the supervision of a health professional. Establish a trial. The third thing is the presence of insight did not contribute to increased crime rates, increased incidence of public injection, or relapse rates in the injection drug users. Now that third finding, you know, I think was hardly fought at trial but it was made by the trial court and Supreme Court sees itself as bound by that. So that's the, the facts they're working with. You know, it's not their job to find the facts, these are the facts they're working with. And so they say, well, minister, what's the purpose of your discretion? Minister says, aha, to protect public health and safety. And so they say, well, every single factor suggests that it is denying the exemption that will be a risk to public health and safety, not granting the exemption. So they say to not exercise your discretion to grant this exemption on this application in these circumstances is arbitrary because it is completely unconnected with the purpose for which you were granted that discretion. The purpose for which you were granted that discretion, guiding the scope of your jurisdiction, comes from Ron Corelli, right? That's Ron Corelli landing in insight. Okay. In essence, we've said before, and I'll say again, arbitrariness is the opposite of the rule of law. If you're talking about arbitrariness, you were talking about a rule of law concern. It is the thing that the rule of law, you know, sort of personified would fear the most, arbitrary exercise of state power. So the rule of law is on the side of, of Joe Arve. Canada, on the other side, says, are you kidding me? You're saying the rule of law is on the side of a position that says, We've been violating drug laws for so long that we can't comply with them anymore. And now we must be told we don't have to comply with them anymore. Canada says, how is that conceivably the rule of law? You know, you violate a law long enough that you can't stop violating it and now the law can't apply to you? Whose rule of law is that? Well, it's again an interesting illustration of how the concept of the rule of law can be grabbed by both sides to a dispute. I won't get into how the court you know, dealt with Canada's objection there, but in essence, they, they point to the factual findings um, at trial to sort of downplay this concern. But there's a legitimate rule of law 
uh, you know, concern underlying that fundamental thesis that widespread disobedience of a law can mean it uh, violates the rule of law to apply it going forward. So the thing that I really want you to take away from this insight case is this idea that you can get to a level of arbitrariness, again, when you act so far outside the intended purpose of your statutory discretion. Again, it's the why, not the what. Do they have the power to deny this exemption? Of course they do. But why can they deny the exemption? It can't be for these purposes that the court finds you know, run directly contrary to the actual purpose for that discretion, which is public health and safety maintenance. The other thing I want to just comment briefly on, on Insight is the intersection of the charter and admin law here. This is not framed as an admin law case, and so the fact that the charter analysis um, doesn't proceed in the way we would see it in an admin law case may not be surprising. But the fundamental thing I want you to take away from this is just don't look to insight for charter guidance and how to apply it in admin law. We're getting to that, but this case will only lead to confusion. Until we get really deep through it, then we may come back to say, could some of the ideas from Insight be a better path forward in how to use the charter and admin law? But it's not the lay of the land right now. So just don't, you know, that, that's one reason I'm hesitant to teach this, this case, but I think it's important enough that I want to keep doing it, but I want to just have that caveat. Any questions about Insight? Yeah. Um, I guess it kind of relates to Mark That's a great question, absolutely. And that's a question of statutory interpretation where you have to take, so th there may be a provision that provides discretion, section 56, section whatever it is. Is it the purpose for which that discretion was given or is it the purpose for the broader statute as a whole? And the answer is actually going to come to you in the next case um, in the modern approach to statutory interpretation, which would say that you can't interpret that discretion, that section 56, without reference to the purpose of the statute as a whole. So fundamentally, it's the purpose of the discretion, but that discretion ought to be interpreted in a way that's consistent with and furthers the statute as a whole. Um, you know, it may be that there's something written so explicitly that you would see that tension there and then you'd have to go with the explicit language. But really, it's the purpose of the discretion, but that discretion ought to import the broader statutory purpose. It's a great question, though, which leads really nicely into the next case. But are there any other questions? Okay, so the next case we're going to talk about is um, cell gene. So this is, just, you know, not a hugely transformative Supreme Court of Canada case, 
Um, but I think it's illustrative of some rule of law concerns and illustrative really of further um, a, a nuance in how this idea of Ron Corelli and understanding the scope of jurisdiction in the context of legislative intent has become so enmeshed and how it is you know, furthered beyond these sort of extreme arbitrary outcomes cases. That's a bit of a mouthful, but hopefully it unpacks nicely. So this is a judicial review. Um, this is a traditional administrative law case coming up through the federal court system because it's drugs, which is a federal court matter, um, a federal matter. What you have is a um, New Jersey-based pharmaceutical company. This New Jersey-based pharmaceutical company is kind of a dodgy actor, I might say. They have been fined, I think, $300 million at one point for fraud. And they're creative in their business structures. So what they see is they have a drug that can treat multiple myeloma and leprosy, two blood, blood issues, a blood drug. They have um, the interest in the Canadian market. They have different ways that they can enter the Canadian market. One way is to obtain what's called a notice of compliance, in essence, submit to the regulation of Health Canada, sell drugs in the ordinary way. The other way is through what's called the special access program. And what the special access program does is it lets you sell drugs in Canada that are not otherwise available, that are, um, you know, for, for treatment of certain serious conditions where traditional treatments may not, um, may not work. Once you're approved under the special access program, there's no limit to how much you can sell or how long you can be under this program. You don't have to move into the notice of compliance administrative world. So this company is happily selling drugs and they're happily selling drugs for a lot. These are expensive, expensive drugs. That captures the attention of an admin tribunal, the Patented Medicines Review Board. And the Patented Medicine Review Board has the power to determine if, in essence, there's price gouging going on in, this, in the, the pricing of medicines. As a subsidiary to that power to make those determinations, they have an information gathering power. And we'll see that a lot of administrative tribunals have you know, both the ability to decide something, but also the ability to investigate something. And it's possible to judicial review either their actual decision or the exercise of their investigatory powers, you know, pre leading to that judicial review or leading to that ultimate decision. So here you have the Patented Medicine Review Board saying, give me a bunch of information about your drugs so I can determine if your pricing is, is any good or if your pricing is gouging people. Company complies for a little bit, but then they say, forget it. You know what? You don't have jurisdiction over us to make that kind of an order. 
we are not going to provide the information and we're going to happily continue to sell our drugs in Canada at whatever price you know we please. So how do we determine if the patented medicine review board has the power to demand this information from this company? Well, we have to see whether the legislature gave that member of the executive, that board, such a power. How are we going to do that? By looking at the, the words of the statute. And what's the key phrase for their scope of jurisdiction? Well, it's whether that they have the power to require information to investigate the price at which medicine, this is the phrase, is being or has been sold in any market in Canada. What a clean, simple statutory interpretation question in a way. Is this company that's selling drugs out of New Jersey into Canada selling these drugs in Canada? To slightly complicate matters, Celgene is clever, right? And what they've done is they've used an old uh, you know, piece of shipping law where part of shipping law is you have to determine when does the transfer of ownership in any good happen. They use what's called free onboard shipping. Free onboard shipping posits that as soon as I drop the thing in the mail, load it up onto the ship in olden times, whatever it was, as soon as I stop having direct possession of it, it's yours. You now own it. When I put it in the mail and I drop it in the mailbox, it becomes yours. Why would people have developed free onboard shipping? What's the kind of underlying idea? Well, it was just to allocate risk if something went wrong in shipping. So if you uh, purchase a whole bunch of spice, um, you know, maybe from India shipping back to, to England, um, if you bought it free on board, then there's a, uh, a moisture problem or there's a, you know, rats or something like that on the, on the ship and it shows up all spoiled, you can't go complain to the vendor. So that's an idea of transferring, managing risk of damage in transit, kind of an insurance question almost. But Celgene says, well, we can use free onboard shipping, not because we're really too concerned about the drugs being damaged in the mail, but more because we want to make sure the locus of sale is New Jersey. And they're saying, listen, it's free onboard shipping. I put it in the mailbox and I have finished my sale in New Jersey. You must pay me in US dollars. I do not pay Canadian taxes. Um, this is no different than if somebody had driven down to New Jersey, come to my you know, business, bought something from me and left, and I don't know where they go. I, you know, it, it, this is a sale that happens in New Jersey. And what does Celgene have on their side? A ton of jurisprudence saying in the commercial context, in a free onboard shipping situation, the locus of sale is where it was delivered to the mail, like where, where it was put in transit. So they say, surely the proper interpretation of this is consistent with ordinary commercial practices. 
that would mean that this is not sold in Canada. It was sold in New Jersey. Patent and Medicine Review Board, you therefore have no jurisdiction to compel me to, to um, provide this information because the terms of your statute don't provide it to you. They're very clear that your jurisdiction is only over medicines sold in Canada. So it's a compelling argument, right? Goes to the admin tribunal for determination. They say, I hear you. I don't question that that's the ordinary commercial meaning. But Parliament's purpose in granting me this discretion to investigate medicines being sold in Canada is to protect Canadians from price gouging. You were, I think, maybe gouging Canadians on price. You're forcing Canadians to pay way more than they have to for a patented medicine. I think it would be inconsistent with the purpose for which Parliament gave me this discretion to interpret that discretion as so limited by the ordinary commercial definition of the word sold in this context. It would be inconsistent with why I got that discretion if I interpreted it narrowly. Rather, I'm going to interpret the discretion in a way that fulfills the purpose of Parliament more broadly, departing from these cases and say, in this context, sold doesn't mean what it could mean in other areas. You can see how this is a case that reasonable people can disagree on. <coughs> it goes to the federal court, judicial review, heard by Justice Campbell. He's amazing. He was a judge at age 28, if you can imagine that. And he retired recently at age 75. Yeah. <laughs> um, like his pension vested when he was like 35. Like he could have really just kicked back. So. He didn't. He was a very accomplished judge with actually a very interesting, um, a very progressive attitude in a lot of ways. But even this very progressive, famously progressive judge in some ways, Justice Campbell says, I can't get around the commercial meaning of sold. This is, we have to have some consistency. Parliament, you can change the, the wording here, but people have to be able to expect that if you're going to use sold in one sense in the Income Tax Act, you're going to use it in the same way in the Patent and Medicine Review Act. And I'm going to interpret this in the way Celgene says. Goes to the Court of Appeal, two to one split. Two judges say, no, the Patent and Medicine Review Board interpretation was right. One judge says, no, you know, the Judge, judge Campbell was right. Goes to the Supreme Court of Canada for final determination. And they resolve it through... Um, applying what's called the modern approach to statutory interpretation. No doubt you've heard this a million times. It's like an incantation, like the words of a statute are to be applied in their ordinary grammatical sense, consistent with the object of the meaning, scheme, parlor, intention of parliament. Like you do a rosary every time you say that, I think. But the, um, they, they say that, they apply that, and they say, look, I don't think that you were wrong to consider the intention of parliament and consider the intention of Parliament with your own specialized knowledge and expertise 
as to what your role is. You understand how you fit in the broader patented medicine sort of scheme. You understand what Parliament was getting at. And I think you were both correct and reasonable to have decided the way you did. For, the, for some of the reasons that we sort of have talked about. Um, on the standard of review, we're coming back to that for a lot of this course. Uh, there is some confusion on the standard of review in this case, and the court, Supreme Court of Canada says, look, I think this was, you should have just looked at whether this was a reasonable decision, not tried to second guess whether it's correct or not. Um, leave that aside. Anything standard of review before Vavala, we can basically forget about, and this is that. So don't get confused by this case later in the course on that point. Um, but Celgene is an interesting case, I think, because now we're getting at the idea of not just avoiding being arbitrary, not avoiding like insane arbitrary outcomes, but just interpreting the scope of discretion, the scope of jurisdiction, really being guided by you know, the administrative bodies, frankly, own interpretation of what parliament was getting at. So this idea of parliamentary intent, what was the purpose for which this discretion was being given? What's the purpose of the broader statutory scheme? You know, starts in Ron Corelli and just continues to skyrocket in terms of importance for any analysis. So, you know, Celgene, not a hugely consequential case, um, but I think a nice illustration of the continued importance of, of assessing intent for which discretion was given, how it can land to resolve a case even where there's two reasonable outcomes. Like people can disagree on whether or not um, this was sold in Jersey or sold in Canada. You know, quite different from are you allowed to just be blatantly discriminatory to Jehovah's Witnesses? This is, this is a close call, but it's still the idea of the intent of parliament guiding discretion. This is still the threads of Ron Corelli's basic sort of um, development being seen. Are there any questions on, on Celgene? All right, so let's get to the last case that we're going to talk about today. Um, this is the uh, Highwood Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses case. This is an interesting case um, because it, it lands here in the course because it's about what the rule of law is not concerned with, fundamentally. Sort of a negative case with respect to where rule of law concerns arise. I think it's actually quite well written by Justice Rowe, and there's some language that really has a, a simple and deep kind of understanding of what admin law is and admin law is all about. It's a case that when you read the Supreme Court of Canada decision, you're almost like, how did this get up there? How was this even controversial in a way? But the, the fact is that the... Um, both the Alberta, it was, it was trial level was Alberta Court of Queen's Bench and Alberta Court of Appeal, you know, uh, went the other way from the Supreme Court of Canada in this case. So more difficult issue than it may immediately meet the eye. And so what this Highwood Congregation case is about is you have a um, 
a religious organization, Jehovah's Witness organization, there is no statutory basis for this organization existing. There's no active parliament creating this organization. It's a voluntary organization, a faith community. And the, um, the, the would-be judicial review applicant was a member of this congregation who got subject to disfellowship. And in essence, if you're found to have behaved immorally and been insufficiently repentant, you can be kicked out of this organization. And as you can imagine, um, you know, being a member of a faith organization can be hugely central to your identity, a huge blow to this person, obviously. And he chose to fight the decision to, um, to, to kick him out through bringing a judicial review application. Now, it follows a path that looks a lot like this, like this chart on the board. There's an initial decision by the congregation to kick him out. There's an internal review mechanism where it goes to the, I think it's called like the judicial committee. It's something very legal sounding. It's actually an independent review from neighboring churches who come together to say whether there's actually you know, a reason to disfellow this person. They say they were right. You know, they were there okay to do so. Then they go to the um, judicial review at the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench, where the first question is whether this is even within the jurisdiction of the courts to hear this type of a judicial review. And relying on some existing jurisprudence, they say, yeah, this type of dispute, when it gets at questions of procedural fairness and natural justice, when there's an allegation someone's been denied fairness, a fair procedure, even in a religious organization, can be subject to judicial review. Court of Appeal agrees, goes to the Supreme Court of Canada, and Justice Rowe says, in essence, hold on, we are missing the thread completely in what we're talking about when we talk about administrative law and judicial review. He says, in essence, it's nice that you look like this. Formally, you look like a judicial review. But show me where you fit in this. Nowhere. The Highwood Congregation Jehovah's Witnesses is not part of the executive, right? That's the fundamental point that this decision falls upon. They are not exercising any power or discretion granted to them through statute. They're not a public body at all. They're a purely private body. So the simple takeaway here is a purely private body is not subject to oversight through judicial review. If you want to complain about the way a private body is treating you, a private entity, a private actor, go situate yourself in tort, right? Go show a contractual relationship. Maybe establish a fiduciary duty. Plenty of routes that you could potentially take to get to court. Maybe show a human rights violation under human rights legislation. 
Maybe you look for another piece of legislation, maybe a consumer protection or you know, employee protection act or workers' compensation. Endless routes through which the courts will oversee private interactions. Judicial review is not one of them. You have to be talking about state action. This is public law fundamentally that we're talking about now. Has to be state action. I love the um, statement. It's at paragraph 96 of the decision where Justice Rowe says, judicial review is a public law concept that allows Section 96 courts to engage in surveillance of lower tribunals. in order to ensure that these tribunals respect the rule of law. You couldn't better articulate what judicial review is than that. That is it. Judicial review is a public law concept that allows Section 96 courts, the judiciary, to surveil lower tribunals, the entirety of the executive, to make sure they respect the rule of law. So if you, if you want like a, I don't, you're not gonna find a better explanation of what we're doing here basically than that. Private parties, he says, cannot seek judicial review to solve disputes that may arise between them. So, He says in paragraph 14, this is a, you know, if you want to come close to a ratio of the case, paragraph 14 would probably be it. Judicial review is only available when there is an exercise of state authority and where that exercise is of a sufficiently public character. Now, I like that he says state authority here. He doesn't say tribunal decision. It really is this broad encompassing definition that could include the executive broadly. So there's an exercise of state authority and then it's a sufficiently public character. I wanna take a second at the end just to unpack what that sufficiently public character thing is getting at and then I think we'll, we'll wrap up a few minutes early today because it's quite a dump of information. So what he's talking about here most of the time, state authority is exercised in a public way. But sometimes state authority acts just like any other corporate body. And they enter into contracts. You know, they hire somebody to clean. They enter into a lease to rent office space. These sorts of things don't have any public character. They're private arrangements entered into by the state. Those sorts of things, he says, are not sufficiently public. But everything else, where the state is acting in a way beyond the way an ordinary actor, an ordinary individual could potentially act, you have a sufficiently public character, 
that the rule of law is going to demand that the executive stay within the scope of its jurisdiction and the judiciary is going to oversee that. Um, really briefly, there's some nice comments on justiciability in this case. It's a concept we're going to come back to, as I, I keep saying we're coming back, we are coming back to a lot of things. Justiciability we do touch on quite a bit. Um, have in the back of your mind, maybe when you're studying, that if you want just a good summary of some principles of justiciability, you could read the last page of the Highwood Congregation case and get a nice summary. All right, any questions? Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Well, okay, so to explain why, there was a line of cases that come out of this weird anomaly back in the day where I talked about how you used to have to go to Parliament to get a lot of stuff done that now is done by admin tribunals or maybe not at all, um, maybe purely private things. But it used to go to Parliament to, in essence, get a charter for your church. You would get a private bill that would, in essence, create and empower a church. That didn't happen for Highway Congregation, so irrelevant. But because there was um, acts of parliament involved to create churches, that was a hook that led to some judicial oversight. So they said, well, you look at this church, so look at this church. And they kind of the, the, the reason that they were doing it in the first place got kind of lost on the judges. And so you got some bad decisions. And so, I mean, honestly, I. I've said this before, but if you want to watch, like this case was argued at the Supreme Court of Canada by, do you guys know Michael Fetter? He's a really good lawyer in town. McCarthy guy, he argues tons of Supreme Court of Canada cases. He's about as good as somebody is right now. And if you want to see a good lawyer get roasted, you should watch him on this case. Like he has no chance. It is amazing. He holds up really well, but like my goodness, because it does seem crazy when it comes right down to it. But that's, I think, the historical explanation for why 2018 we're still talking about this. All right, any other questions? All right, let's, um, let's stop there. And um, yeah, we'll pick up on um, Wednesday with remedies.